Hello, folks. Welcome to First Thursday, the monthly podcast from the Labor Relations Information System. My name is Will Aitchison. I'll be your host for the next 45 minutes or so as we go through recent developments in the public safety labor world. First of all, an apology. I sound uh, a little bit croaky. I'm just getting over something, and uh, sorry about the sound quality. Uh, Next month will be better. But do listen on. We've got some great things to talk about today. And I'm going to start with artificial intelligence. In the last podcast, I talked to you about an outfit out of Chicago by the name of Trulio that is applying artificial intelligence to body camera audio in an attempt to predict which officers are going to engage in misconduct in the future. Uh, and I warned that you know this is just the start, right? We're going to see a lot of this sort of stuff, and we've seen it already. Uh, I want to talk about uh, a product that is being offered by an outfit called Benchmark Analytics. We'll put the link on the show notes on our website. Benchmark Analytics has developed something called First Sign. And this is something, and I'm, I'm largely uh, parroting the web page. This is something that applies machine learning algorithms that compare what an officer is doing uh, by observation, observation of the officer's past activities. And what the program is looking for is any display of excessive force or what Benchmark calls problematic behavior. So uh, what, what is the purpose behind all this? Uh, Benchmark is saying that with this software, they can predict, and I'm quoting, 85% of major adverse investigations, end quote, a term that's not really defined on the website, Uh, before they even happen. Uh, And I'm assuming that what they mean is we can predict which of your officers will be engaged in some sort of conduct that will produce a major internal affairs investigation. So we know how AI works now, right? Uh, It looks at a vast body of data and correlates the vast body of data and uh, or the, at least this type of AI, and attempts to predict what's going to happen in the future based upon the data. So what data does Benchmark and First Sign use? What it does is it looks at arrest records, stop and service call information, use of force data, internal affairs reports, whether sustained or not sustained, dispatch information, and the catch-all, quote, other data, end quote. So what does Benchmark do with this data? What does the program uh, end up predicting? And from the webpage again, First Sign provides, and I'm quoting, a holistic view of officer behavior and potential warning signs of misconduct. 
the system allows supervisors to determine if officers are out of compliance with policies. Let me pause right there, okay? So what this system is going to do beyond simply predicting is it's going to review all of these different uh, data sources, dispatches and reports and everything like that, and is going to make an assessment of whether an officer's actions are out of compliance with policies. And it's unclear really how deep this goes, but I think a fair reading of this is everything that an officer does that is recorded in some fashion is going to be analyzed for compliance with a department's policies. Wow, that's pretty significant on-the-job surveillance, isn't it? Okay, back to what benchmark analysis is saying uh, it is going to do, in this case, for the future, looking forward. How is it going to use this data for predictive purposes? Quote, each officer is given a risk score based on the system metrics and supervisors then use the risk scores to determine whether the officer needs counseling, training, or to be terminated. Uh, yes, indeed. Uh, this is going to be used in Benchmark's uh, own description. This is going to be used to identify, based upon predictive information, which officers should be terminated. Uh, even before officers do something that actually warrants termination. And I know many of you are thinking about there, uh, thinking out there uh, about something like, didn't we see a movie like this? A movie that had Tom Cruise in it? Uh, yes, indeed you did. It was called Minority Report. Uh, so we are in this new world of the application of AI to disciplinary issues, and retraining, and other performance issues in public safety agencies. Uh, as I ad advised last month, what do unions and employers need to do about this beyond the fact of trying to make knowledgeable decisions about what system you're going to uh, use, if you're going to use one at all? You need to bargain. You need to sit down and talk about it. You need to hash out all the possible uses of software like this and reach an agreement as to whether those are permissible or impermissible uses. The last thing we need to be seeing here is to look up two or three years from now and we've got unfair labor practice complaints plastered from California to Maine as to whether or not there are bargaining obligations about the use of this software. I think there will be. But without regard to how you come down on that issue, talk about it. Try to work out the problems in advance. Unfortunately, I think I'm going to be saying more later on all of these issues.
Next up, a topic I haven't talked about in a long time, mandatory COVID vaccination. Uh, the reason I want to talk about it is we have a major decision from one of the most hotly contested vaccination debates around the country, this in the city of Boston. Uh, you may remember that Boston's newly elected mayor, Michelle Wu, imposed a mandatory vaccination program in uh, January of 2022. Uh, and that was in the wake of several memorandums of understanding uh, that the city had reached with various unions that didn't call for mandatory vaccination. And then Mayor Wu was elected uh, at about the same time that the Omicron variant was running wild. Uh, and she decided, forget those MOUs, uh, we're going to go with mandatory vaccination. And the different public safety unions in Boston uh, took different approaches to the mandatory vaccination program. The rank-and-file police union uh, ended up trying to negotiate with Wu uh, about the effects of the bargaining, excuse me, the effects of the mandatory vaccination requirement, uh, and ended up reaching some agreements on several issues. Uh, the three other major unions, uh, the rank-and-file firefighters union, uh, the police detective society, and the Boston Police Superior Officers Federation, all three of them uh, filed a spate of litigation and were not uh, engaging with the city in the same way that the police rank-and-file police union was. So among the various pieces of litigation filed by the three unions were a, was a lawsuit, consolidated lawsuit, uh, filed in the state trial court level. Uh, and what the unions were seeking was both a declaratory judgment, tell us what the law is, and an injunction. Uh, and the injunction would have prohibited the city from unilaterally implementing the vaccination policy until the city had completed the bargaining process. And right off the bat, a, a trial court ruled in favor of the city and said the city, because of the Omicron emergency, uh, the city had the management right to implement a mandatory vaccination program. Uh, and after that followed an appeal, and it was an appeal that in a very unusual system they've got in Massachusetts, stopped with one justice of the Massachusetts uh, uh, Intermediate Appeals Court, and that justice ruled in favor of the three unions and said this is a negotiable issue. Uh, and you cannot implement the policy until you're done with the bargaining process, which in Massachusetts ends with binding arbitration. That, of course, inevitably led to an appeal from the city, and the case wound up with what's known as the Supreme Judicial Court of Massachusetts. And the Supreme Court sides with the city. Uh, the court finds that, uh, or found, that the city did not have to bargain over the decision to amend its COVID-19 policy 
to remove testing as an alternative to vaccination. Why was there no obligation to bargain? Uh, the court relied on the notion that there are certain core managerial prerogatives under the Massachusetts bargaining law. And what are those prerogatives? Uh, the court said, quote, certain managerial decisions are exempted from collective, collective bargaining obligations where such decisions as a matter of public policy must be reserved to the public employer's discretion. And the question, the court says, is the crucial factor here uh, is determining whether or not there is a conflict between bargaining and the perceived requirements of public policy. And the court says there was when uh, Mayor Wu implemented the new policy. And what was that conflict? The conflict was, and I'm quoting from the court, the fact that, quote, the Omicron variant ran rampant throughout the Commonwealth and vaccination against COVID-19 was viewed as the only effective means by which the city and the mayor could combat the virus while still performing public functions. Uh, the court relies on the executive director of the city's public health commission. And by the way, you see this in court decisions all over the country, relying on whoever the public health official is in that particular city or county. Uh, and the court says, look, according to this executive director of the public health commission, Quote, the continued practice of testing as an alternative to vaccination would be insufficient to contain the spread of COVID-19 following the emergence of the Omicron variant. And here's the big sentence in the court's opinion. The city's policy decision to amend the COVID-19 policy was based upon concerns not only for the health of the city's employees, but also for the residents of the city, for whom the city was obligated to provide continued access to public safety services. In other words, if we have too many firefighters and police officers getting ill from COVID, it is without question a public health emergency. Not public health in the sense of citizens or uh, even the employees themselves getting COVID, except public health in the sense that police officers and firefighters, if too many of them get COVID, they're not going to be able to provide public safety purposes. So uh, what about those MOUs or I think they call them actually MOAs, Memorandum of uh, Memoranda of Agreement. What about those MOUs that uh, said testing is going to be an alternative to mandatory vaccination? Here's how the court dealt with it. Quote, neither, can, neither of the MOAs contains express language demonstrating an agreement between the parties as to mandatory collective bargaining on any potential future decision to require mandatory vaccination against COVID. 
well, wait a minute. That's just fundamentally wrong, isn't it? You reach an agreement that says that testing is an alternative to vaccination. That demonstrates an agreement as to mandatory collective bargaining on future decisions about mandatory vaccination. It says you can't have mandatory vaccination. That's what that says. So that language from the court uh, actually is kind of judicial gibberish. Uh, but the next sentence probably isn't. The court says, quote, any agreement to mandatory collective bargaining on an issue of public health and safety in light of the emergency of the Omicron variant likely would not have been enforceable as the city is not free to bargain away certain elements of its non-delegable authority and responsibility to act in the interests of public health, safety, and welfare. Now, this isn't the end of the bargaining issue for these three unions. They also filed the equivalent of unfair labor practice complaints uh, in the what's known as the Massachusetts Department of Labor Relations. That's the Labor Board for Massachusetts. Uh, and that proceeding is still pending. And what what's at issue there is going to be the timing and nature of effects bargaining. Although you can argue uh, that the uh, Supreme Court's decision in this case takes the issue of timing completely off the table and all that the Labor Department of Labor Relations is going to decide will be whether or not there are effects that are negotiable uh, after implementation. Uh, so that's it from uh, Boston. There's very few vaccination cases still pending. And I think it's safe to say uh, that the law is pretty mature on this issue right now. Uh, courts around the country are virtually uniform in agreeing that a mandatory vaccination program does not violate the constitutional rights of public employees. And courts and labor boards are virtually in agreement that an employer has the right to implement a mandatory vaccination program so long as it agrees to bargain over the effects of the program, even post-implementation. Okay, now over to Pennsylvania, where we have a major decision involving a union's right to charge non-members uh, for the cost of representation. And this is, uh, of course, in the wake of the Supreme Court's decision in 2018 in Janus versus AFSCME Council 31 uh, that struck down the constitutionality of mandatory fair share payments or what were known as agency fees. Well, there's a footnote in the Janus opinion that has had a lot of us wondering, and we'll post the Janus decision in our uh, show notes here. And, and the footnote says, uh, acknowledges uh, that there's something wrong with the notion of allowing someone who's in a bargaining unit, which means the union has a duty of fair representation to that individual, uh, 
and allows that individual to demand that the union provide services even though the individual is not a member of the union and not paying dues. And the footnote, in the footnote, Justice Alito, who wrote Janus, uh, said something to the equivalent of, you know, that's kind of a legitimate argument there, unions. And for Justice Alito to say anything a union says is a legitimate argument is kind of a stunning moment in jurisprudence. Sorry about the editorial comment there, but that's the way he rules on labor cases. Uh, Justice Alito said the union can always charge uh, for its representation costs. And that sent a lot of us who advise uh, unions into a tizzy, wondering whether or not uh, the Supreme Court really meant that uh, when it said that. And uh, a lot of unions have... Uh, decided they're not going to charge non-members for representation costs. But some unions decided to do so. And uh, we have our first decision uh, from a court. This is an appeals court in Pennsylvania. Our first decision as to whether or not those charges are legal. So what happens is there's uh, this, this all occurs with the Pennsylvania State Corrections Officers Association. And in the wake of Janus, the association revises its bylaws to allow it to charge non-members for representation services. So uh, what were the charges? Well, they were nicely laid out in a fee schedule for the association. Uh, and uh, they said, step one, you want us to file a grievance? Step one of the grievance procedure, we're going to charge $50 for that. Step two of the grievance procedure, so we're moving it up through the internal changes, or, excuse me, the internal levels of decision making on the grievance procedure. That's going to be a filing fee of $100. Uh, plus, we have a panel that decides uh, step two grievances. Uh, the panel involves the time of three business agents, and we're going to charge $40 an hour uh, for the business agents. And if we bring in a local vice president, we're going to charge $200 a day plus travel and lodging. Lodging. Uh, so you can tell they're not at the lawyer level yet when we're talking $40 an hour or $200 a day. So what happens when we get to the lawyer level? Well, that's step three. And the association is charging non-members who want to go to arbitration $3,000, which is the cost of the arbitrator, plus a lawyer at $250 an hour, plus travel and lodging. Business agents still at $40 an hour, and executive officers at $85 an hour. So that's the, the fee structure. It's adopted by the association. Uh, and uh, all is well uh, for a little while. And then a chief... Uh, by the name of Taylor, Chris Taylor, who's a member of the association's bargaining unit, uh, he decides, 
I'm going to resign. I'm going to take advantage of uh, Janice, and I'm going to resign my membership in the association, and I'm going to keep on filing grievances. Uh, and uh, Taylor, when he sees this new fee structure that the association has come up with, files a petition uh, for a declaratory judgment with a court seeking to have the fee structure declared illegal. A trial court rejects his argument, and Taylor appeals to the Pennsylvania Commonwealth Court, which is uh, Pennsylvania's intermediate court of appeal. Uh, and the court rejects Taylor's arguments and upholds the validity of the fee structure. Here's the court's reasoning. Quote, Individual bargaining unit members have no absolute right to have their grievances arbitrated. Rather, a union has broad discretion to determine whether to pursue a grievance to arbitration and has no duty to arbitrate every grievance. You may be familiar with that language. It's from one of the early U.S. Supreme Court decisions on the duty of fair representation, a case called VACA versus Sipes. This is the court just simply parroting the U.S. Supreme Court's language. Uh, and the court says here, uh, look, in Janus, uh, the court addressed one of the potential problems posed by its core holding, namely the problem, quote, that public sector unions like the association would be forced to represent non-members like Taylor in grievance proceedings. And the Supreme Court found, quote, representation of non-members furthers the union's interest in keeping control over the administration of the collective bargaining agreement since one employee's grievance can affect others. And whatever unwanted burden, here comes that sentence, is imposed by the representation of non-members in disciplinary matters can be eliminated through a uh, the process of requiring individual non-members to pay for that service or be denied union representation altogether. So the Commonwealth Court says, well, if that's what the Supreme Court said in Janus, we accept the notion that the assessment of these sort of fees is, quote, an appropriate alternative response to the financial conundrum, end quote, that unions such as the association uh, face in whether or not they have to represent free riders. Unions, says the court, you have the right to have a fee structure and it doesn't violate anybody's constitutional rights. Next up, kind of a really interesting surface bargaining case out of California's Public Employment Relations Board, rather an administrative law judge with California's PERB. So what's surface bargaining? Surface bargaining is a term that has been given to a particular form of bargaining in bad faith. When you think surface bargaining, 
you think one side coming to the bargaining table, uh, leaning back on their chairs, crossing their arms and saying, uh, our proposal is this, whatever this is. And then that party never varies from that proposal and never engages in meaningful discussions of the other side's proposal. It's very, very hard for labor boards to find surface bargaining. They distinguish between what they call surface bargaining and, quote, hard bargaining, end quote. Hard bargaining is not bargaining in bad faith. And hard bargaining can even involve moving ever so little or maybe even, some cases say, not moving at all on various proposals, so long as you really look like you're bargaining in good faith. So it's been very, very hard for unions or employers uh, to prove that the other side has engaged in surface bargaining. But the city of Compton in California in its negotiations with its firefighters, has shown us, in fact, you can go too far. You can engage in surface bargaining. Uh, the Firefighters Union, which is local 2216 of the International Association of Firefighters, uh, filed an unfair labor practice complaint saying, uh, look, uh, the city has engaged in surface bargaining uh, by its behavior. And what was the behavior that the union was citing? First of all, it said, we've been at the table for a year and a half. In that time, the city has had, count them, four chief negotiators. There's been no evidence that any of these chief negotiators or anybody on the bargaining team maintained bargaining notes. No evidence anybody took bargaining notes, briefed their successors, or took other steps to ensure continuity in negotiations. What's the city's explanation for this? Uh, the city contended that it was, quote, in turmoil at the time, uh, because the city controller's office was nearly dysfunctional due to staffing uh, shortages. And because the control, uh, controller's office was doing all of the costing, the city could not evaluate the cost of local 2216's proposals. And so why was the controller's office uh, so dysfunctional beyond staffing shortages? because uh, people in the controller's office were preoccupied with a state-mandated audit and a corrective action financial plan. Uh, and also because the pandemic had a massive impact on the city's general fund. So what does the administrative law judge uh, with PERB do with all, all of this information? The ALJ says, sorry, city, I'm not buying any of those explanations. Uh, the court says, uh, look, or excuse me, court, the administrative law judge says, uh, quote, 
the city has introduced no evidence that it faced or declared an actual financial emergency during the period covered by the unfair labor practice complaint. End quote. The ALJ says the projected effects of the pandemic, they were an anticipated or possible finance financial emergency, not an actual one. Uh, quote, however dire these projections, the consequences were still merely predicted. Under these circumstances, PERB has repeatedly rejected an asserted business necessity or emergency defense because there is not yet an actual financial or other emergency. And the ALJ was particularly troubled by the repeated change of lead negotiators and uh, the compounding effect of one set of negotiators, those who were being removed by the city, not briefing the new negotiators on what had happened. Uh, And here's from the ALJ's opinion, quote, the city's frequent reversals and delays in negotiations that coincided with changes in the city's negotiators demonstrate that the city failed to vest its representatives with sufficient authority to engage in meaningful bargaining, end quote. And the ALJ concludes uh, that the city simply did not take negotiations seriously. Uh, Exhibit number one on that, the fact that the city did not take bargaining notes. Uh, So in the end, Uh, The ALJ concludes that the city failed to bargain in good faith, that it actually met that standard of having engaged in surface bargaining uh, and uh, commanded the city to return to the table with all sorts of uh, different remedies. This case, it seems very, very likely is going to be a fee, uh, appeal to the full PERB. And so we're going to hear more on this case uh, moving forward. You know, we try uh, at LRIS to read every published public employee labor board decision in the country. Can't say we actually get to it, but uh, it's something I've tried to do for years and years. I will tell you on the issue of surface bargaining, it is rare to find even one case a year finding that surface bargaining actually occurred. It is such a tough, tough standard. And the city of Compton has told us what lies over that line, what meets the standard. The last case I want to talk about is kind of an unusual one because I fundamentally disagree with the result. Uh, I, I think Uh, This result is just flatly wrong. Uh, But it comes from a state Supreme Court. Uh, This is the Supreme Judicial Court of Massachusetts, once again. And as one justice of the U.S. Supreme Court once famously said, uh, quote, we are not final because we are right. We are right because we are final, end quote. Well, I guess that's the case if you're on a Supreme Court, right? So what, what goes on in this? What's this case all about? 
Uh, this involves the New England Police Benevolent Association, the PBA, which replaced the Teamsters Union as the bargaining representative for dispatchers in the city of Chelsea, Massachusetts. Uh, when that changeover occurred, when the PBA took over from the IBPO, excuse me, the, um, the Teamsters, uh, the PBA sought to arbitrate a grievance regarding the termination of a dispatcher that had occurred prior to the change in representation. And at the time, the PBA is trying to refer this grievance to arbitration. Uh, there's no new collective bargaining agreement in effect. All you have is the old Teamsters contract under which the grievance was filed. There's no new contract between the PBA and the city. Uh, and the city uh, initially refuses to proceed to arbitration over the grievance, but eventually reaches an agreement uh, with the PBA where they are going to refer to an arbitrator the core question of whether the grievance was arbitrable. In other words, is there any jurisdiction for the arbitrator to hear the case? And uh, the arbitrator rules in favor of the PBA and says, yes, it is arbitrable. Uh, and then the city challenges the case, files an appeal all the way up to the Supreme Judicial Court. And the court held that the grievance was, in fact, arbitrable. Uh, why? The court starts with a lot of precatory language about the value of arbitration, how there's a presumption of arbitrability, uh, and we're only going to say that agreements is not arbitrable if it can be said with positive assurance that the arbitration clause is not susceptible of an interpretation that covers the asserted dispute. This is the Supreme Judicial Court calling back to some United States Supreme Court decisions, the Steelworkers Trilogy of cases that talk about uh, the value of arbitration and when it is we defer to arbitration. And continuing with uh, the callback to the Steelworkers Trilogy, uh, the Supreme Judicial Court says doubts in about whether or not a grievance is arbitrable should be resolved in favor of coverage, uh, particularly where the arbitration clause is brought. And the court said, here, and we're going to apply uh, a three-part test. First of all, is the issue in dispute in this case, the termination, covered by the arbitration provision from the former collective bargaining agreement. Second, did that agreement expire or was it extended by the parties? And third, what's the effect of the change in union representation on the ability to arbitrate? And the court ends up saying, look, here's how we're going to rule on these three questions. First of all, uh, did the arbitration provision cover discipline? Sure, the court says. That's easy. No one's disputing that. The arbitration clause 
uh, or excuse me, the contract says specifically, quote, any protest against discipline, suspension, or discharge shall be handled under the grievance and arbitration procedure provided by the contract, end quote. So first question, easy. Second, uh, regarding the extension or termination of the agreement, hey, uh, the, uh, the prior agreement was extended by the Teamsters, but the city's position here is that that extension automatically ended upon the change in union representation, which took place one year before the employee was disciplined and sought arbitration. Uh, and the court ends up saying, uh, look, you know who decides these sorts of questions, the effect of an extension? Uh, that's going to be the arbitrator. You have given the arbitrator the authority uh, specifically by agreeing to refer to the arbitrator the question of jurisdiction, you've given the arbitrator the authority to decide these sorts of issues. Uh, quote from the court, as interpretation of the contract, including the extension and termination provisions, has been assigned to the arbitrator by the contracting parties, we defer to the arbitrator's interpretation, even if it implicates arbitrability. And the court ends up concluding uh, on the third question, can a union enforce an arbitration agreement against an employer where the union's trying to arbitrate a grievance filed by the predecessor union? The court ends up saying, Yes, that is possible. Here, the previously negotiated contract had been extended by an evergreen clause, been extended by a year. The successor union simply seeks to enforce an arbitration agreement negotiated with its predecessor. The court says, quote, we determine the employer must arbitrate the grievance, and the successor union steps into the shoes of the predecessor, end quote. So why do I disagree with that? Uh, I think what goes on under the law uh, on a national level on this issue is once there is a change of representation, all agreements between the, the predecessor union, the Teamsters here, and the employer, they're automatically dissolved. And that would mean not just the collective bargaining agreement, it would also mean any agreement to extend the collective bargaining agreement. Look, the Teamsters, the old union, is no longer on the scene. There shouldn't be any obligation on the employer's part to honor any agreements with the Teamsters. And that is, in fact, the way labor boards in other parts of the country have ruled. So does that mean that the employer's discharge decision is simply upheld? Well, no. And this is going to be a little bit subtle. Once the new union takes over, the PBA here, the employer has an obligation to maintain what are called 
laboratory conditions. You can't make any changes in wages, hours, and working conditions until the first agreement with the new union is negotiated. It's got to maintain the status quo on anything that is mandatory for bargaining. So are disciplinary standards mandatory for bargaining? You bet, right? It's probably, certainly, is the most important negotiable working conditions. And is the disciplinary standard of whether you have to have just cause for discipline a negotiable topic? Sure it is. Uh, that's been found to be the case, again, by labor boards all over the country. So what all that means when you put it together is that the new union can continue to challenge the discipline, the termination of the dispatcher. It just can't do so through the vehicle of a grievance and arbitration under the old contract. It must do so by filing an unfair labor practice complaint contending that the unilateral change in working conditions, the standard for discipline, violated the employer's duty to bargain in good faith. There's a classic Wisconsin case about this uh, that uh, I, I just love because the facts are so distinct. This is one involving a deputy sheriff in Wisconsin, and he was fired uh, by the sheriff and went to arbitration under uh, the union contract, and an arbitrator decided no just cause for discipline, reinstate the deputy sheriff. Deputy sheriff is reinstated, and then days later, the members of the bargaining unit vote to change who their union is. And the sheriff, uh, you could just almost see the sheriff rubbing his hands together at the opportunity takes that opportunity to fire the deputy sheriff again for the same offense. And uh, the union files an unfair labor practice complaint with Wisconsin's labor board saying, hey, unilateral change in a mandatory subject of bargaining discipline. You can't make that change. You cannot discipline somebody without just cause. And Wisconsin's labor board sides with the union and says, employer, you got to maintain all laboratory conditions. You cannot be firing someone without just cause any more than you could be changing wages or hours of work until that first union contract is negotiated. So you get to the same place, right? The union has the right to challenge the decision. It's just through a different vehicle, through filing a ULP rather than through filing a grievance. Well, that's it for our May edition of First Thursday. Uh, if you've made it this far listening to me croak my way through uh, all of these cases, uh, good on you. Uh, we hope to see you at our next upcoming seminar, which is the our Rights of Police seminar that we'll be holding in uh, June in Las Vegas, or at our Grievances and Arbitration seminar that we'll be holding in Las Vegas in September. And with that, hope you have a great month. This is Will Aitchison signing off.